Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. The United States is officially back to UNESCO, the United Nations Specialized Agency on Education, Scientific and Cultural Affairs. On July the 25th, a flag-raising ceremony was held to honor the re-entry of the U.S. after a five-year absence. The Biden administration proposed in June to rejoin the organization and committed to repaying 619 million U.S. dollars in arrears in installments over the coming years. A vote was held later in June in the Paris headquarters of the agency on the matter, during which 132 countries voted in favor and 10 states, including China, Russia and Iran, voted against. This is the second time that the U.S. has rejoined the organization against the backdrop of U.S. caprice when it comes to international commitments, including agreements such as the Paris Climate Accord and the Iran nuclear deal. Is this going to be the last time? Why is the main architect of the multilateral international order apparently undermining it? Why did China vote no? I'm pleased to be joined from Beijing by Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Suzhou University, from Miami, the United States, by John Quelch, Professor at the University of Miami Herbert Business School, and from Moscow, Russia, by Anton Fidashian, Associate Professor of History at the American University in Washington, D.C. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point for this very important discussion. So, um, Mr. Gao, let me go to you first. Uh, as I mentioned uh, this March, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken told Congress that China is filling the vacuum left by the United States in UNESCO. He said that uh, they, meaning the Chinese, are working on rules, norms and standards for artificial intelligence. We want to be there. And China right now is the single largest contributor to UNESCO. That carries a lot of weight. He said, we are not even at the table. Is that the main reason why the U.S. wanted to rejoin the UNESCO, to be at the table again? Thank you very much for having me. Uh, other things being equal, the United States of America should be a member of UNESCO and uh, many other international organizations. So for the United States to rejoin UNESCO is something that we need to ask. Why? Why is the United States rejoining? Then the other question we need to ask is, why was it the fact that the United States decided to uh, withdraw from UNESCO? I think this whole farce is created by the United States itself. If there is a vacuum, as Tony Blinken was talking about, that vacuum was created by the United States. So the United States is at full fault for the fact that it withdrew and then it wanted to rejoin, etc. Another point that let me emphasize is that the international organizations, including UNESCO, is not a playground for kids, spoil the kids in particular. Therefore, I think this whole farce revealed the fact the United States is not a mature country, is not exercising leadership or statesmanship. It's really very capricious. That's the only word I can think of. And I think China's opposition is firmly based on the fact that if the United States wants to become a member, pay all the overdues, for example, all the arrears. And 
now the United States wants to pay all the overdues in arrears over many years, for example, at the time when the United States still runs a high uh, overdue in arrear for the membership fees for the United Nations. This is not acceptable and this does not bode well for the United States as a member of UNESCO because U.S. joining UNESCO is most likely turning UNESCO into a battleground, not for science and technology and many other things that mankind are very much interested in, but into an ideological geopolitical battleground at the time when the United States is not a fully paid up member of UNESCO. This is turning the United States into a farce. Professor Quelch, what is your take? I mean, especially given what the Chinese Foreign Ministry's uh, reaction after the U.S. proposed to rejoin UNESCO, that uh, international organizations are not parks. Countries can just come and go as they please. More importantly, the U.S. must not view international organizations in as places for geopolitical wrestling and pursue global leadership in the name of interests of international community? Uh, well, first of all, I'd like to remind you that uh, the United States left uh, UNESCO because of the radical politicization of UNESCO uh, as a result of uh, Palestinian admission and uh, anti-Israeli activity within UNESCO targeting the United States. So politicization of an agency that should be uh, educational and cultural and in the interests of global cooperation and mutual respect, uh, that politicization led the United States to leave. Now, five years later, the Biden administration has, I think, quite sensibly rolled back the uh, decision of the Trump administration. And this has been greatly assisted by the current director general, who has a much more mature view of what UNESCO should be all about than her predecessor, uh, who was responsible for, in large part, permitting the politicization to occur. So it's very welcome that the French director general has facilitated and worked very hard to facilitate the re-entry of the United States and, in addition, has cleaned up some of the waste and corruption that characterized uh, UNESCO under uh, the previous regime. Uh, so we welcome, of course, uh, our readmission into the UNESCO and uh, hope to play uh, a prominent part as befits a country that is going to be contributing uh, around about 22% of the UNESCO annual budget and indeed, as was pointed out, uh, paying $619 million in arrears uh, for the five years that the United States was not part of the uh, UNESCO organization. Uh, so I think we should look forward in a very positive uh, way to this development and uh, it's going to be good for the world, of course, that the United States is back in UNESCO. By the way, the ambassador of China to UNESCO when this uh, decision was first announced made a very warm welcome uh, to uh, the United States on its re-entry and accordingly I think uh, there must be some difference of opinion uh, within the foreign ministry of China.
Professor Fidashian, what are your reactions to what Professor Quelch just said and of course to Mr. Gao's statements? Do you also think that the, it was the right decision for the U.S. to withdraw in the first place and also the right decision for the U.S. to rejoin at this particular moment? You know, I think that it's important to remember that the United Nations and all of its institutions um, are not really sort of sovereign uh, actors on the world stage, although they certainly should be. They are a barometer of the geopolitical situation in the world at any one time. And countries have, you know, come in and gone out and had their problems with UNESCO um, for decades. It was created as a Western club. Um, right after the Second World War and dominated by Western uh, states. And it did very good work, by the way, during that time. And then during the era of decolonization, when between 45 and 1960 alone, there were about three dozen new countries, um, UNESCO uh, became bigger, it became more complicated, uh, it became more difficult for Western states to get their way all the time. In 1974, Gerald Ford, the U.S. president, suspended payments, and then uh, President Reagan actually took the U.S. out of UNESCO in 1983. The British, by the way, followed under Margaret Thatcher in 1985, and the U.S. came back under George W. Bush. Um, and then President Obama suspended uh, payments again in 2011, and then Trump took the U.S. out. So this is part of the geopolitical game I think it's uh, great that the U.S. is uh, back in, but this is all uh, a manifestation of much deeper systemic standoffs and conflicts that we see in our world, including the most important systemic structural change, which is a gradual de-Westernization of uh, geopolitics, uh, by which I do not mean the disappearance of uh, uh, the EU and European countries and the U.S. from the world stage but simply recalibration of the balance of power in Europe. And it manifests itself both economically and militarily and geopolitically and also culturally and in the realm of uh, science. So we'll see how the United States behaves as a member of the organization, but I can only welcome its return to the ranks of the global community. Professor Quell, do you want to react to that? Because this is, as Professor Fidashin rightly pointed out, this was not the first time that the United States withdrew from UNESCO and rejoined. If there is a problem, for instance, that you just mentioned, wouldn't it be also appropriate to resolve the problem being part of, being on the platform instead of withdrawing it? What kind of president does it set for other countries? I mean, if you don't like a certain organization, just retreat. Um, is that going to be the right way for problems to be solved? Uh, no, I don't think so. And I agree with uh, the professor uh, that uh, the United States out of an international organization is not good uh, for the organization or for the world. In fact, uh, I think many in the United States would be critical of what we call empty seat diplomacy. In other words, the notion that you can conduct diplomacy uh, if you are not seated at the table. The UNESCO performs very, very many uh, valuable functions uh, in terms of uh, uh, educational initiatives and uh, in the climate change arena. Uh, water is an area that UNESCO has been very, very much focused on, water conservation. Uh, and in addition to that, of course, uh, the World Heritage Site uh, program of UNESCO is very important to tourism and travel for many, many nations around the world. 
So these are all very important activities, and I would agree it is wrong for uh, the United States not to be a part of these organizations. But when an organization is hijacked uh, by a group uh, to promote activity and objectives that are not related to the mandate and mission of the organization, then I think uh, that's not a good thing either. All right. Uh, Professor Gao, your reactions before we wrap up. Uh, first of all, the uh, distinguished panelist uh, mentioned uh, the issues around uh, Palestine. Allow me to emphasize, Palestine is a very important country in the world of today. And Palestine is entitled to join all the international organizations. Any country try its best to exclude Palestine is not the right thing to do. It is against the megatrend of the world. Therefore, for the United States to withdraw from a very important organization like UNESCO, based on membership for Palestine, is, in my best judgment, the wrong thing to do. And the U.S. discrimination against the state of Palestine is one of the fundamental reasons why the United States is firing its relations with Arab countries and the Muslim countries. Therefore, on this very important occasion, allow me to emphasize the fact that the United States need to deal with Palestine in full respect rather than discriminate against the legitimate rights of the Palestinian people and to support UNESCO in dealing with a great nation of Palestine. That's number one. Number two is that, of course, the United States is still a leading country in science, technology, health, many things which are covered by UNESCO. Yeah. And this is the reason why United States being a member of UNESCO is a very important thing. And I hope, first of all, the United States will never withdraw from UNESCO. Secondly, the United States will be a responsible member of UNESCO rather than being a spoiled kid in the wrong sense of all the right. word. And really shoulder the international responsibilities on its own shoulder. Okay, we have to leave it there for this topic. Many thanks to my guest, Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Suzhou University, John Quelch, Professor at the University of Miami, Herbert Business School, and Anton Fidashin, Associate Professor of uh, American School in Washington, D.C. When we come back, Japan released the 2023 Defense White Paper, hyping up the China threat. How much of it is based on facts and how much of it is a justification? Stay with us. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Does Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida want to abandon decades of pacifism and make his country a true military power? The newly published 2023 Defense White Paper may provide some insights. Released after the Japanese government's approval of the new national security strategy last December, this white paper suggests that Japan is encountering, quote-unquote, the most severe and complex security environment since the end of World War II. But how much of that claim is fact and how much is a justification for hastening their military expansion? What are the potential impacts of a more assertive Japan for the region and beyond? Is Japan's deepening of its alliance with the U.S. and collaboration with other so-called like-minded countries going to produce a force for good? 
as it claims. I'm pleased to be joined for more discussion by Victor Gao, Chair Professor from Sutra University, Professor Anna Malindogui, Vice President of External Affairs of the Asian Century Philippines Strategic Studies Institute, and from Moscow by Professor Anton Fedashian of the American University in Washington, D.C. So, Professor Malindogui, let me go to you first. Now, the white paper is yearly, but the defense strategy is every 10 years. How important is this particular white paper? And what's the biggest difference between this latest defense strategy compared to the one published 10 years ago? I think um, the the defense um, paper of 2023 of Japan is very important precisely because this is where we can see um, what will be the trajectory and what will be the direction of the Japanese government when you talk about military and defense. And as you can see, I think the big difference between the last 10 years and this year is Basically, um, if you really read the defense paper, it's a synchronized and it's a mirror image of the national defense security of the United States. As you, as you can see, it's singled out China and even Russia and North Korea as its so-called um, greatest strategic threat to its security, right. which is 10 years ago. I think it was not like that. So that's one. And I think in terms of impact, it's very um, telling that this means it or it may provoke what you call arms race in the Indo-Pacific region or the Asia-Pacific region, which I don't think Asian countries would like to see in the long run because that is not good for the region and it may create some kind of um, military or military confrontation among countries. It depends on the situation, which is very volatile at the moment. So that's what I can see um, with this um new 2023 defense white paper of the Japanese government. Mm -hmm. Professor Fidashian, what is your perception? Because uh, as uh, Professor Malindogui pointed out, China and then the DPRK and Russia are singled out as the biggest threats to Japan. And the reason for Russia, for instance, is the war on Ukraine and that the Ukraine, Ukraine was not prepared to face off any such invasion. There Therefore, Japan needs not to experience the same lesson. Do you see such fears grounded in facts? The grim realist in me you, um, tells me that it was um, uh, fairly unrealistic to expect uh, uh, Japan, uh, a nation uh, with that kind of economic and therefore potentially military clout, to really be a pacifist nation for too long. Does that mean that it's turned away from pacifism is good? No, it doesn't, but it is uh, inevitable. It's just the reality of international affairs. The problem is the way that it's being done and how Japan is being co-opted into a specific block. If it were emerging as a great power with all of the military, um, a strength that attends uh, uh, this kind of emergence inevitably. And if it were balancing in its own region between different sides, that would be one thing. What's happening, unfortunately, is that it is being incorporated into a United States-led uh, block, and no one can possibly have any doubts about it. We just had the uh, Vilnius summit of NATO mm -hmm. uh, on the other side of the continent about a week ago. And uh, although Ukraine was at the center of everyone's concern, there were four Indo-Pacific uh, nations 
uh, present there, Pacific nations, and they were Japan, um, the Republic of Korea, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand. And NATO has already made it abundantly clear and done so publicly on numerous occasions that its long-term plan is to expand its influence into the Indo-Pacific region. And there's no secret about this. Um, it always baffles me why the United States expects China to support the right of NATO to expand into Ukraine, despite all uh, Russian concerns about this, when the same organization is already announcing plans to essentially expand in one way or another into the Indo-Pacific. And the fact that unfortunately Japan is becoming part of that expansion uh, promises increased tensions in the Far East. And I have to tell you, if I were a Japanese uh, politician, I would be looking for intelligent ways to balance in my uh, region of the Pacific instead of joining the bloc. Because as Ukraine shows, uh, this kind of bloc status, bloc diplomacy, results in uh, uh, violent overthrows of governments, mm. civil wars, and mm. then uh, invasions. Um, we'll see if the Japanese manage to, to find an intelligent, calibrated, balanced policy. But so far, unfortunately, they seem to be going in the other direction. Let's see what happens. Mm. Professor Gao, what is your take on the question? Is uh, Japan putting itself into greater danger by markedly aligning with the United States in the security issues and singling out China as the current um, as unprecedented and the greatest strategic challenge, quote unquote. What is your take on all of the things that it listed about why China posed such a threat to Japan? Well, first of all, when we look at Japan today, including the white paper and the defense strategy of Japan you mentioned, we cannot talk about it in a vacuum. We should connect this with what Japan did before 1945 and what Japan did when it uh, surrendered unconditionally to several countries, including the United States, of course, but also China and the former USSR, and the pacifist constitution that it had been implementing uh, since then. Uh, therefore, for Japan to rearm, to uh, try to push its political agenda through military means is absolutely the wrong thing to do. And it should not be tolerated and should not be allowed. Now, whether it is done by Japan itself on its own volition, or whether Japan was hijacked by the United States, for example, and increasingly uh, binding Japan onto the bandwagon of the United States in pursuing the anti-China hostility, for example, that's another thing that all of us need to uh, analyze very carefully. And also, whether the Japanese people uh, who have been following the pacifist uh, approach for decades now want to or have any interest in rearming themselves and try to make military adventures outside of Japan, that's also a very important question we need to ask. Anything. Anyway, I think the word of importance is that it will be absolutely against Japan's own fundamental national interest to become part of a bloc against other countries in this region, especially those countries which it surrendered to in 1945. Japan should never forget what it did when it unconditionally surrendered to China and to USSR, in addition to the United States, of course, in 1945. 
it should never forget the historical lesson that war for Japan is a dead end, and war for Japanese people will be a disaster in 1945, as well as whenever Japan wants to rearm and pursue its political goals through military means. Therefore, I appeal on the Japanese government to forget about rearming itself. It should use wisdom, diplomacy, negotiations to achieve its goal, rather than becoming a military instrument played by another big country like the United States against whom, against China and countries like Russia. This is a futile attempt in its nature. It will be completely disastrous. For the Japanese people, if it is really implemented,、mm-hmm. Professor Malindo Gui, I want to get your reaction because the white paper really sets at least cites at least eight aspects why China poses the greatest threat to Japan in terms of security,、uh, including、um, you know what China does around its、uh, island province of Taiwan and what Chinese aircraft carriers are doing in the Pacific Ocean. What do you make of all of these? You know, for, for, from the Chinese perspective, these are ridiculous claims because what China is doing to the to the province of Taiwan,、uh, how come it has to do with Japan? And, by, and let's not forget, as as Mr. Gao pointed out, Japan colonized in a brutal rule of the island for 50 years. Yeah,、um, that's actually a very important point that you're saying.、Um, one thing first,、uh, b- before I comment on the、um, the mention of the Taiwan question in the in the white paper of the Japanese government is first and foremost, this white paper signals as well that you know aside from the arms race that it may provoke in the Asia Pacific region or the Indo Pacific region, another thing is it might create division among Asian countries, which is not good for Asia at the、mm-hmm. moment. Given that this century is what we call Asian century, meaning Asia is the cent- Of economic development and prosperity, so that is not good for Asian countries. Second is it will escalate tensions in the Indo-Pacific region, which we see now, given the, the tensions in the South China Sea that is quite escalating because of interference coming from in- external powers like the United States. So. With regard to the mention of Taiwan in the white paper of the Japanese government that was released recently, I see it as an over-the-top kind of thing on the part of the of Japan. And Taiwan is an internal affairs of、um, it's part of the internal affairs of China. It's a domestic affair of China, and we have to recognize the fact that if a country、um, honors and respect what you call the One China policy, then they have also to be very、um, true to their words by not、mm-hmm. interfering in the internal affairs of China. Because if you do that, then it creates a lot of tension and、okay. it will create a lot of problem. And I don't think China、okay. will will blink an eye in trying to defend its in,、yeah. um, integrity as a country. So for me, this is all. Over the、okay. top, and I don't even agree. And I agree with Professor、okay. Gao that Japan should at least, you know, rethink this kind of、yeah. um, direction that they're taking. We have to leave it there. Many thanks to Victor Gao, Anna Malingui, and、uh, Professor Anton Fidashian. With that, we come to the end of this special edition of the Point with me, Liu Xin, coming to you from Beijing. You've got the point.